Good morning, church. All right, do you know what time it is? If you've got a copy of God's Word, open it to the book of James, a letter in the New Testament towards the middle of the New Testament, but the back of your Bible. Uh, it's on page 947 in my Bible, and that doesn't matter a bit about what page it's on in yours, but if you open to the book of James, we're kicking off today. Everybody say woohoo. Come on. Kicking off brand new series in the book of James, Faith Works. Faith Works. We don't work for faith. We don't work for our righteousness. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out of. It works itself out of us as God is working in us. And I don't know, I don't know if you have a favorite book of the Bible. I, I don't know if you're, if you're that far along that at least you, you have a few books that you've read through. Uh, but for many that I've run into over the past 20 years, uh, the book of James tends to be a book of uh, maybe memorized verses, okay? Maybe it's not your favorite book, but uh, maybe some of the verses that you have kind of memorized, sort of memorized are in the book of James. It is a powerful, everybody say powerful. It's a powerful, powerful book, the letter from James to us especially today, but he was writing to his own church. You know that James was a pastor, and he was writing to a church in great need. And we're going to learn about that as we kick off. We are going to make it all the way through the fourth verse. Do you think we can do it? I mean, I, I know, four verses covering one time. You're like, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, but as we, as we kick off this series, we want to be thinking about this question. Why trials? Why, why trials? Why do we have to face them? Why do we have to go through them? Why does anybody on this earth have to go through it? But especially, why do God's people go through such trouble? Why are there so many problems? And just in a few verses, we already have the beginnings of an answer that helps us to understand the heart of God, the mind of God, as we go through the junk of life, as we go through the opposition, the heartache, the trials. If you want to write this down, James the slave of Jesus. In verse 1, James, a servant, or literally a, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Verse 1. Who is he writing to? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, or also known as the diaspora. He says, greetings, greetings. Typical introduction, except we need to pause and, and ask a little bit more about who this James is. I don't know if you know this. There's quite a few Jameses in the, in the Bible. James is his there's multiple and this one happens to be the half brother of Jesus uh, the one that would know Jesus the best might be the one that actually like bunked with him right uh, that got into that fist fight but it was a one-way fist fight right uh, and and James was swinging well, guess what Jesus was doing not not swinging back right and and every time that James picked a fight there was no response and every time that he watched Jesus, uh, have a command from mom and dad, guess what happened? He obeyed perfectly. What did James do? Mm, not so much. Not, not so much, right? So if your brother, right, growing up in your home says, my identity is I am a servant, I am a slave of my brother, you think that the person that claims to be God just might have some validation based on those that knew him best. No one in their right mind would grow up with a man claiming to be God and then follow him and commit his life. And later on, we're, we're going to find out in, in church history that he was martyred. He was killed for the cause of his, his half-brother. I mean, 
This is pretty, pretty powerful verification that who we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus in this message, that it's true, that it's legit. James, he identifies himself as, I'm a slave, I'm a servant of Jesus. And he's writing to these 12 tribes. Uh, the, the dispersion of the diaspora was uh, the, the fleeing, really, for the lives of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under heavy persecution, and here Pastor James is writing letters as those that are, that are getting out of the city. And guess what? He's not going to have them under their care. He's not going to be able to walk with them because they're, they're going in all different directions. And he's got one last thing to say. He's got one letter to write to be able to have them take with them as they go. They may live. They may die. At this point, they don't know. But as they go, they know that they have a word from their, their pastor and a word from God. If Proverbs... The book of Proverbs, are you familiar with 31 Proverbs, the wise sayings of Solomon? If, if Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount, the first sermon that Jesus preached, if the Sermon on the Mount in Proverbs had a baby, it would be James, okay? There, there are powerful phrases, slogans, ideas, word pictures, metaphors that is like, this sounds really familiar. This sounds like Proverbs. And then you read a couple of verses later and you're like, didn't Jesus say that? That, that kind of sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. Well, James was highly influenced by the Old Testament and the words of Jesus himself, the preaching of Jesus, and he boils all that down and writes this letter. We have a letter that doesn't necessarily provide us with tons of new information. It's not new theology. I want something like, wow, I never thought about that. That's so fascinating. I, I need to do a deep, deep study on that particular verse. There's not as much of that. It's not new. It's not new. Everybody say it's not new. It's not new. It's He's laying out a lot of things that like, I kind of already knew that I should be doing that. I should be thinking that. I should be living that. It's reminders, reminders. And he unpacks it in a way that isn't just, here's the principle or here's the idea, but he presses it deep into our hearts of, this is exactly what's happening in you. This is what should be happening that's coming through you. And this is why you're facing what you're facing. This is your heart, right? These are your motives. This is what's going on inside of your mind. And now, here's how you live practically the faith that you profess. It's one thing to say it, to talk about it. It's a very different thing to live it out day after day after day. James is so insanely practical. And so when believers listen and obey God's word, they love him more and they love others more. And James knew that, and he's writing for that purpose. Love God. Love others. This is the life that we are to live. And we have actions left and right. We, we have such powerful images of go and do and live. And he clarifies not for salvation, but because you are a brand new creature in Christ, this is the way. This is the new life. This is how we live it. We practice what we preach. We walk the talk. James is pretty fired up about this because he says, if you're being persecuted, if your life is overwhelmed with trials and problems, you are not prone to live out your faith accurately, precisely, intentionally. You're prone to go back to the old way. You're prone to run and hide. You're prone to retreat, not press in and see your faith grow. And he was so burdened for those that are suffering, those that are hurting, the things that are happening in the church. And so we have some serious practicality going on today and the rest of this series. And so God won't give you more than you can handle, I wrote down. God won't give you more than you can handle. And I put a question mark. 
And I just thought to myself, Pastor James is about to show us, actually, we're going to go through seasons where we have so much to handle that it crushes us to the point of despair. So one of the greatest lies James is going to unpack is, uh, you can't handle this. You can't live this life on your own. You need help. And as the persecuted church is hunted, he wasn't saying, hey, you got this. God's never going to, oh, you got your head chopped off. I guess he did give you more than you could handle. He, he's talking to Christians that are about to get tarred and lit on fire and impaled with stakes and light up the streets by Nero in Jerusalem. Almost every single one of his sheep are going to be tortured and die. God is giving them way more than they can handle, but he's speaking into their lives so that they can live out their faith even if it's to the bloody end, no matter what, no matter the circumstances. So number two, as we see number one, James, this is who he is, who he's writing to, his heart for the church. And number two, if you're taking notes, write this down, trials, trials, the purpose of the test. What's the purpose? What's the point of the test? We're about to find out what's going on here with these trials. Verses two and three, count it all joy. Do you see that? Verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when, when, everybody say when, it's not if, it's not if, when, when you meet trials of various kinds, your great God decided that after you came to Christ that it wasn't enough that you would stay where you are, but that you would actually press in, that you would walk through. If God wanted to, tell me if I'm wrong, if God wanted to, he could have, he could have rescued, forgiven, saved us, and then say, boop, up to heaven you go. Now that you're mine, enter in. It could have happened in a moment. It could have happened that way. Turn to your neighbor and say, that could have happened. It could have happened that way, but it didn't. And why is it that God leaves us here and takes us through the fire and takes us through the, the gamut of testing, it says? There's got to be a point to this. This isn't just random. He's not just messing with us. He's doing something in us. And, and James wants us to know, what is this? What, what is happening? Well, first of all, he says what? When you meet these trials, when you go through these trials, how are you supposed to respond? What are the first few words? Count it all joy. Count it all joy. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters. Can those that are lost and running from God, far from God, can they count the horrible, terrible, no good, very bad things that happen to them on a regular basis? Is there any joy in that? No, because there's no point. Why am I suffering? Well, what does he say? My brothers, my sisters, you, you're the only people on the face of the earth that can actually consider it a joyful matter to face whatever you're, you're facing. This is unbelievable, that we're the only people on the face of the earth that can go through the most horrific experiences and circumstances. And our response not just can be, but James says, it should be one of joy. Not giddy, happy, skipping along when I find out that I, that I have cancer, that when we lose a loved one, that we find out we lost our job, we don't know how to pay the bills, that we just skippy, happy, snappy. It, it ain't happening that way. But a deep residing, I can consider this a joyful experience because I know who and I know why and I have a little snapshot into an understanding what's going on behind the scenes. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Various, various. Yeah. Financial, emotional, physical, spiritual, mental, relational, Marital, vocational, various, various. Turn to your name and say various, various. So you, you know what 
this means. If it's various, it means anything could happen at any time, right? And, it, and it's, it's unpredictable. And at any moment, any one of us could be facing things that we never thought, even in our lifetime, that we would be facing. Is that true? Various. It, it's, it's not a predictable pathway that it's a, it's a rite of passage for all Christians, and here's the three things that you better get ready for. We don't know what's coming. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know at what point it's going to surprise us, but it's various. Is it just one type? Various, various. We're talking technicolor. We're talking a buffet line. Of, we're talking little, tiny, itty-bitty irritations all the way to life-threatening to my life will never be the same after this point. Has anybody been there? A lot of times it's this date is going to mark the rest of my life. There's going to be a before. There's going to be an after. Because this trial is going to do so much altering to my mind, my body, my heart, whatever it is, my finances, my family. He's talking about the little stuff. He's talking about the big stuff. He's talking everything in between. And as believers, this is not Satan getting the upper hand. This is not God punishing us. We're going to talk about that later. This is God working through whatever it takes to transform us, to become more and more like his son. And for some of us, we walked in and we're like, really, God? Really, God? Like, how come, how come he just got a, a little sample platter, right, of, of trials, and, and I got, like, the full gamut. I got the truckload, right? It, like, I'm hearing the beeping in my front yard, and the dump truck is about to, like, load us up with not just one, but one after another, after another. Have you been there? After another, after another. Are you there right now? After another. Like, when is it going to stop? And, and I thought that was over, and I thought that was just going to be a short season, and various, and various can mean length of time, length of severity. And here we are, maybe prone to ask a lot of questions and maybe not getting a lot, a lot of answers. Maybe the book of James is for you during the season. It's a lifeline. It's a phone to be able to ring God at any time and say, God, talk to me. Help me understand why, why, why. And God's not maybe going to give you absolute clarity, but he's going to give you quite a bit. So here we go. So listen, listen, listen to this. Stop separating your Savior from your trials. Stop separating God from what's happening to you. As, as I was reading Acts 17 this past week, it just, Paul's talking about, about this. You can jot this address down if you want to. Uh, Acts 17, 22 through 31. This may be an encouraging passage for you this week to meditate on alongside James. But Acts 17, 22 through 31 discusses Paul saying, God chose you, he placed you exactly where you are, and he has chosen the exact length of your days. You think God's in control? You think the God that is bringing the trial is the God that's over the trial, that is absolutely sovereign in every detail of the trial? It, we, would, we would lose the day if we were to just look up every passage that affirms that God is in it and God is for us as we are in it. And God's right there in the middle of your trouble. And maybe today you just need to be reminded, he hasn't left me. He's here. He's here. He's with me. He knows. He's hurting with me. He's weeping with me. For you know, verse 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, for you know, you know. Lift up your voice and say, you know. You know this. You know this. Not I hope so, not I think so. I know it. I know it. Church, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. 
1 Peter 4.12. Jot that address down. It's pretty awesome. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, loved one, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. Turn to your neighbor and say, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery. He's talking, he's clarifying even more about the trials that Christians face, that all of us face, but especially as believers, the purposeful trials from the hand of God. Fiery, fiery trials. When it comes upon you, don't be surprised. When it comes upon you, it's, it's to test you as though, as though something strange were happening to you. You're surprised as though you didn't see it coming and you're wondering why you were chosen, why you kind of have bad luck or why, why it is that God's picking on you. He says, don't be surprised. You were told about this. You knew this was coming. Maybe a question for us is just asking, why am I always surprised? Why is it that I'm caught off guard? Why is it that, that it's so jolting to me when things come, when trouble knocks on my door? Why is it that I'm always just thrown off? Why is it that it puts me into a funk for, for weeks and then months and then maybe even years? Why is it that I'm so thrown off? Because God told me. He told me. He told me it'd be like this, right? Not just your mama told you it'd be like this. God told us it's going to be like this. This is going to be your life, especially as you faithfully follow your king. Because we misunderstand what God is doing in our trials. I, if you have your outline there, if you want to jot some of these things down, what is God doing? We have a little bit of, but our problem is what? We, we feel, we feel more than we think. We allow emotions to be the engine instead of the caboose. And our problem is that we don't let God lead the way. We allow our emotions to dominate and drive forward all of our responses to what's happening to us. So if you're taking notes, six things God is not, not, everybody say not, six things God is not doing in your trials. Number one, he's not punishing you. He's not punishing you. He's not punishing you. You may feel like it, but maybe you need to write this down. I may feel it, but I'm not going to feed it. I may feel it, but I'm not going to feed it. It feels like I'm being punished. God is not without power. God is not without a plan. And when you're hurting, you need to grow deeper, deeper, deeper roots of faith. He's changing you, but he's not failing you. He's not failing you. He's not punishing you, and he's not failing you. He's not failing. God cannot fail. He's going to accomplish his purposes. He does not punish his kids because he's already punished his son on the cross. He's not failing you because God doesn't know how to fail. He doesn't have the ability to fail even if he wanted to, and he doesn't want to. How about this? Number three, he, he's not abandoning you. God is not abandoning you. You're not an orphan. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are his. You will be his. He has not abandoned you. When you're hurting, I know that it feels like God, God left. God left. God is not a father that says, figure it out, kid. Just get it together and just work harder and, and just be tougher. Suck it up, buttercup. Never comes out of the mouth of God. He, just, he never thinks that, never says that, never feels that towards you. You're never an irritant. You don't overwhelm him with your frustration and your despair and your anxiety and all of your, your fears and your depression over why and how long. He never leaves. He's always there. He never rejects, never abandons. Your father in heaven is not like that, even if your father on earth was. How about this? Number four, he's not doing evil to you. I wonder if we need to say this out loud, that God is only always good, that God is only always good. You want to say that with me? God is only always good. One more time. God is only always good. It's true. 
It may not feel true in a season, in a trial, when the problem, when the trouble comes. This is what's true about your God. He's only, always good. He cannot do evil to his children. Our God is good. Our God is good. But it feels like when life is hard, here's what's tough. He may not make everything better for you. In fact, I think we have some confidence he will not make everything better for you. He's about accomplishing a purpose that's bigger than making everything better, more comfortable, easier for you. He's got something better. It's, it's better. Turn to your neighbor and say it's better. It, it's better than making it easy. It's better than making it comfortable. He's doing something different, and it's better. But he's not going to make everything better for you according to your terms, according to your demands. And number six, he will not answer every question for you. When life gets hard, a trial, a test, a storm comes, it's easy to formulate your list. Hey, 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 God, I got a list of questions and I need some answers. Like, what's up with this? God on trial. How well is that going for you? When you put, when you put God on trial and take him into the courtroom and start accusing and, and start blaming and start finger pointing and say, God, why? God, why? And I need answers. And, and God, if I'm really going to do this thing and I'm going to follow you and I'm, I'm going to give my life to you, then like, I better have some answers as to why things are happening in my life the way they are, because it's not my plan, it's not my way, it's not my timing. And I wonder for, for some of us, we just need to be reminded, he's probably not going to answer all of your questions. He doesn't owe it to you because he's already written a book. And when God wrote a book, he intended for you to read it so that you would know everything you need to know about what you're facing and why you're facing it. But even at the end of the book, Every question is not going to be answered. For those of us that have had miscarriages and have lost children, there's a lot of questions as to, God, this one is way beyond. This one is way far outside of hard. And I kind of need some answers. For those of us that have gone through things that have stretched into years and there's still no end in sight, God's probably not going to answer every question. So what does he say? What does God say? What are some of the answers that he gives? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. These difficulties are are tests. It's a test. It's a test. Everybody say it's a test. It's a test. It's a test. Does, Does God test his children? There is testing. What kind of testing? Um, not, not so much Mrs. Rottenbridge's exams, right, when you were in the 10th grade, not so much that of like, do my teachers hate me? And, and I'm going to fail and they know it and they love it. All right. It's not like that. It's not like that. It's a test that, that God is going to help you every step of the way. It's an open book exam. Boom. Right. And he is walking with you, presence with you every step of the way. He is for you, wanting you to pass. He gave it to you so that you would pass the test. Testing is a metaphor. And James is using it in a way of metallurgy. Metallurgists, they would dig out uh, ore out of the, the ground. And when you dig out ore, you don't put chunks of ore on a necklace or on a ring, correct? Somebody help me out. Raw ore is worthless in itself until it's what? Until it's purified, until you get all of the nasty junk out of it. And how does that happen? You crank up the temperature and then you scrape off the dross and then you crank it up some more and 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 a new temperature 
boils out certain types of impurities. And when you crank it up halfway, it doesn't get them all, it gets certain ones. And then you get rid of that and they know it's not done until you can see your reflection like a mirror, like glass in something like gold. And we have this image of testing, of purifying. And I just wrote down, God's taking you from weakness to strength by his power, by his grace. He's taking you from ugly ore. He takes you where he finds you, but he saves you not to leave you. He saves you to change you. And he takes you from nasty, ugly ore into something that is beautiful, that's priceless. Unbearable heat liquefies all of the impurities. And God sees, do you believe it? God sees your imperfections. God sees your impurities. But what does he do with it? Reject! Does God do that? He says, I'm just getting started with you. God doesn't find us in our impure state and say, good enough. He says, I don't care how I found you, what condition, what your past was, where you have been, the things that have been done to you, what you've done to other people. But when I find you and I rescue you, it's just the beginning of the process that I'm going to take you through. And what, what's the thing that does it? It's testing. It's trials that are going to do the work. And so if we're able to receive the counsel from James, we can be changed. And here's the reality. You ain't getting this at all from Dr. Phil or Oprah. You're not getting this kind of counsel of why you're going through hard stuff, right? Because they, here's the bottom line. You're not going to hear it anywhere else, right? Right here. Because they can't handle the truth. They don't want the truth, right? And so I hope you came in today. I want to know the truth. I want somebody just to be honest with me. I want to know what's going on, what God is doing. And we do have some answers, but not all the answers. So here we go. Here we go. Listen up. Turn to your neighbor and say, listen up. We don't say the right things. We don't choose the right things. We don't think the right things. We don't do the right things. And so we need help. But here's, here's the deal. God is doing something specifically in us. What, is, what does verse 3 say? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. I don't know what you think God's agenda is as you go through the trial, but we have a snapshot, a sneak peek, and, and here's part of what God is trying to do. He's producing not just character in general. I don't know if you grew up with uh, a parent that's like, it builds character, all right? Like, get out there and, and chew on nails, right? Or like, clean up all, all the nasty boards and try not to step on a rusty one, and it just builds character, right? Drag that pile of rocks to that side just because it builds character. God's looking for something really, really specific in building character. He's looking for this quality, this trait. And what is it? Steadfastness. We, we better get to know what this steadfastness is if this is God's agenda, at least to begin, and why we're going through trials. Trials and tests are meant to produce something called hupomene. Okay? I don't know if you came in this morning with having any knowledge of Greek, but you're leaving here practically a Greek scholar because you got one word down, all right? Hupomene. I mean, everybody can, can read that, right, up on the screen? Hupomene, hupomene. So two words put together, hupo and meno, and when you bring them together, it's, it's, it's something beautiful. To stay, to remain under. Because what's your tendency and what's my tendency when hard stuff comes? Do we stay under it? 
Do we stay put? Do we patiently wait when the storms come? Or do we run? Do we blame? Do we hide? Do we fight back? Do we kind of go AWOL and do our thing and justify it? Because if you understood what I went through and you understood how hard it is, do you know what the number one thing that nobody does is they don't hupomenate. They don't remain and stay under. This idea is to stay under the pressure when it feels like you are being crushed to death and you trust and you stay. It's the, I don't, I don't know the last time you've been at a, at a picnic, but big old watermelon and have watermelon seed, not spitting contest, but flicking contest. If you get your thumb just right over a slippery watermelon seed, you know how far you can shoot that puppy? Because even watermelon seeds know, I ain't doing this pressure thing, right? You put enough and bang, I'm, I'm out of here, right? That's you. That's me, right? When, when the pressure comes, I don't remain under. I don't stay put. I want to run. And here's the problem. If God is going to make us like his son, we are to stay under, stay in the midst of it. There is no going around. There is no a, a workaround calling an audible and trying to avoid the inevitable. We have to go through it and we have to stay under it. How long? How long? Until it's time. Hupomene isn't, wow, you must be really strong to be able to hold it up. It's God in you saying, I'm working out muscles that you've never worked before. Stay put, stay put. This is going to hurt. But the next season, you're going to need to be a little stronger because it's going to be a little harder and it's going to take a little bit longer. And when I'm done, this is the way to Christ's likeness. There's no other way. It's not around and it's not just quickly through. It's under. It's in it. How long? We don't get to choose. We don't get to choose. Hupomene is... God is making me rock solid no matter what. He is shaping me through the trial. The character of steadfastness is I am becoming a steady, stable rock, just like my Jesus. I'm becoming like him, but it takes pressure. It takes time. It takes trial. And pretty soon, no matter what's coming, I am not up and down and up and down and up and down. I am, God, I'm ready to bounce out of this. I'm ready to run, but I'm staying put. Your grace is sufficient for this. You're enough. You're enough. I am going to remain under this. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why, and I don't know how long, but I know you. And I know you're good, and I know you're faithful. And even when I bounce out, you bring me back because the work's not done. And I don't know what you're facing. If you're coming out of the trial and the test, I don't know if you're in it. And if it's neither of those, brace yourself because it's coming. But it's not what's happening to you. It's how you're responding to what's happening to you. God is making you someone that you're currently not. And if we were honest, we would rather have comfort than Christ's likeness. We would rather be able to go back to the old ways than to venture in the unknown of the future. We would rather stay in the safety of manipulating and controlling our little claustrophobic kingdom of one than go through the storm and experience the vast big sky country of God's kingdom and be transformed. If we were honest, if we were honest, we don't 
want to do the hard stuff. We don't want to stay put through the hard stuff. And so the amount of people in our culture that are running from their commitments in family, the amount of people that are running from commitments in their homes to whatever degree, at their workplace, in their churches, I don't want to stay under the pressure. I want to go where it's easy. I want the weight to be lifted when now I want it to be over yesterday. Hupomene. I don't know what your word of the year has been. Some of us have been meditating on a word. Maybe you're like, scratch that. Hupomene is my new word. Steadfast, steadfast. I'm going to keep on going rock solid no matter what. Do you know how contagious that is? Have you been around people where you're like, how do you just keep steadily moving forward, trusting God? How are you not losing your mind? We see people like that, and the reason we're drawn to them is because we see Jesus in them. Because there's no other explanation. How can you do that? And hopefully in your vocabulary, vocabulary, done are the days of you thinking, well, they're just stronger than me, and they just got something that I don't. And like, well, clearly they, they just have some kind of genetic makeup that allows them to endure what I can never endure. No. Do you know what they have? They have Jesus, and they know his word, and they know what to do with the testing. They know how to respond to the trials. Not easy, but it's really clear. We're not saying stay in a place where you're in harm's way and you're going to be abused and hurt. Not saying that. But we're saying, if this is where God wants me for this season, and it's so difficult and so hard, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay under. He's making me a rock. He's making me rock solid. If, everybody say if, if I remain under. If I remain under. Because I don't know about you, but here's one of the saddest things. I've been counseling for over what, 15 years. One of the saddest things is to watch people go through months and years of suffering and then choose to run from God in the end of all of that. Because I'm like, you suffered and you didn't allow the suffering the trial, the test, to produce what God intended it to produce in you. You didn't endure. You were not steadfast. You suffered, and it feels pointless because in part, it is pointless unless you allow what God intended to produce by staying put, by fighting on. Don't give up. It's not done yet. We're not over with this. When God says, I'm done, it'll be done. God is carefully watching you in your trial and he will cry out, enough, enough, when the work is done. When the work is complete, God will bring the test to a completion, but not a moment early. He's working, he's working. Paul Tripp, and and you might have heard me say this or you might have heard this elsewhere, but God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could never achieve on your own. This changed my life. I, I remember the, the moment I heard this quote, there was a before and after of hearing, God's, God's going to take you where you never intended. You, you haven't intended to, to go in order to produce in you what you could never achieve on your own. And when I embraced the reality of the rest of my life, as a follower of Jesus, God is taking me places that I might go kicking and screaming and dragging my heels And I may be scared to death to go, but if I know it's God taking me there, I have to embrace the reality of what he's going to do with me when I get there. And I don't know how long we're going to stay there, but we would never choose it. But if we have God's heart, if we see his purposes, 
You can look at those trials and experience joy. Paul's ultimately, or excuse me, James is ultimately saying, you can have joy. Why? Because the trials are no longer to you a sign of God's unfaithfulness and, and his punishment and his inattentiveness. I can actually have a perspective that trials are a sure sign of his transforming love and his amazing grace. I have a totally new perspective as to why this is happening. So God is carefully watching. God is making me somebody that I can never be on my own. And here we go. Everybody say, land the plane. Here we go. Land the plane. Land the plane. Number three, wholeness. Wholeness. If you're taking notes, the result of hupomene is wholeness. It's wholeness. Completeness. Verse four, let steadfastness, hupomene. Everybody say hupomene. All right. Greek scholars in the house. So proud. So proud. Let this steadfastness, let this hupomene have its full effect, the, the full result of staying steadfast. Why? So that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Steadfastness is for the purpose of making you perfect, complete, lacking nothing. What is Jesus doing in you? Making you perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So what does hupomene result in? That I would be perfect, complete, lacking, nothing. We're not talking about sinless perfection, not that. Turn to your neighbor and say it's not that. Let him know. Clarify, right? Complete means I'm whole. I'm whole. Sin busted me into a million pieces, and God is, is undoing the curse. He's bringing me back together. He's making me who I was designed to be, wholeness. Our worship team this morning talked about shalom, peace. The, the idea of peace is I experience peace when God is putting me back together and making me whole. It's not peaceful circumstances. When the storm calms, then I'll have peace. You'll be waiting for a really long time. In the midst of the storm, peace. In the midst of great loss and grieving, peace. In the midst of heartache, peace. Wholeness completeness, lacking nothing. God, I have everything. It's from you. And so let's finish up with this. What do I do instead of letting hupomene take over? Instead of letting hupomene do its perfect work, what do I do? Let's just fire these off. I let a bad attitude take over my heart. I question the goodness of God, the love of God, the kindness of God. A bad attitude begins when I push hupomene away. I'm not remaining under, I'm not staying under the attitude instead is invited to take over. I let impatience and irritation take over my heart. I question a little bit, and then I question more, and then pretty soon questioning turns into conflict. Conflict with me and God. Conflict with me and others. Impatience, irritation, it doesn't stop there. Instead of allowing hupomene to do its work, I let envy do its work and take over my heart. God loves them more than me. God favors them. Why, why are they not going through this? Why do they have an easy life? Why am I facing this? How come I don't have what they have? Why is everything taken and why is everything given over there? Why is it easy on the other side of the fence, hard in my home? Envy. How about this? And then I let bitterness take over my heart. Instead of hupomene, instead of steadfastness, I get bitter. I get resentful. God, this is your fault. God, why? 
And like we said earlier, I take God to court. And maybe it results in this. I let unbelief take over my heart. How many people have you met where they said, well, I used to believe. I used to go to church. I used to read my Bible. I, I, I used to kind of do some of that Christian stuff. No more! What happened? I, I think the progression is pretty clear. I went through hard stuff and God failed. God let me down. God didn't take it away. God didn't make it better. And we have the ability to have a new perspective and to be new types of counselors to open God's word and meet people where they're at and give them a perspective, a vision of maybe God is doing something different than what you anticipated. Maybe God is seeking to make you holy more than to make you happy. Maybe God has a better agenda than your agenda. So where is your heart? Where is your heart at? And how is it that so many Christians can be doing the church thing for years and years and years and not grow and be stuck even for decades. Could I say this? Where there are very immature Christians for years and years, there is a backstory and a track record of when it got hard, I ran. When it got hard, I escaped. When it got tough, I didn't tough it out by God's grace. And it leaves us immature. We don't grow up. We're not perfect complete, lacking in nothing. 